0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: There's something
0: happening here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with
1: a gun over there. Therefore, more than twenty five minutes before ninety three crashed, both Myers and Rumsfeld heard, according to Clark, from the head of the FAA that Flight 93 was considered a potential hijack. The Commission's tales about FAA incompetence and worthless teleconferences are therefore directly contradicted by Richard Clark's book and Laura Brown's memo. Their combined testimony implies that the Commission's main claim that by the time the military learned about the flight, it had crashed, is a bald-faced lie.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. David Ray Griffin today's show, 9-11, Flights of Fancy. David Ray Griffin is an author, theologian, and lecturer. For the past several years, he has committed himself to exposing the fraud of the official story regarding the attacks of September 11, 2001. Today's program is from a speech delivered in Montpelier, Vermont, on October 12, 2005, Flights of Fancy. Flights 11, 175, 77, and 93 in which Dr. Griffin examines each flight in depth to determine whether or not the official explanation of the failure to intercept, as claimed in the 9-11 Commission Report, is credible. In each case, he provides multiple evidence to demonstrate that the official explanation is not credible. In order to bring you this important speech within the time constraints of an hour program, it was necessary to omit Dr. Griffin's six-minute in-depth analysis of flight number 175, the second flight to hit the World Trade Center Twin Towers, specifically the South Tower. This omission does not in any way compromise the integrity of the presentation. Dr. David Ray Griffin.
1: I will focus on only one issue, that is, why the planes were not intercepted, and deal with how the 9 11 Commission dealt with that question. This explanation by them is provided in the first chapter of the 9 11 Commission report. So today is really a summary of the second half of the 9 11 Commission report omissions and distortions. And I hope I've been able to make it a little simpler and a little easier to follow. But I warn you that it'll still be rather complex because we're dealing with four different flights, three different stories about four different flights, and all these different times. So don't worry that you're not getting the details. You can get the details later in the book if you want to. But today, the idea is just get the overall gestalt. And as you see, we go through point by point. My point is simply that every aspect of their a news story, is deeply problematic. So to see why we now have three different stories about why the military didn't respond, uh, we need to review standard operating procedures. These procedures dictate that if an FAA flight controller notices anything that suggests a possible hijacking, such as losing radio contact, losing the transponder signal, or seeing on the radar the plane deviate radically from its course, then the controller is supposed to notify a superior very quickly if the problem cannot be solved, say, within a minute. The superior then calls NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, and asks them to scramble, send up jet fighters to see what is wrong. NORAD then issues the scramble order to the nearest Air Force Base that has fighters on alert. On 9-11, all the hijacked airliners occurred in NORAD's northeast air defense sector, which is known as NEEDS. So all the scramble orders that day would have come from NEEDS. The jet fighters at the disposal of NEEDS could respond very quickly. According to the Air Force's own website, F-15s can go from scramble order to 29,000 feet in two and a half minutes, and then they can travel at 1,800 miles per hour. Therefore, according to Ralph Eberhardt, the head of NORAD, it takes about a minute for the FAA to contact NORAD after which NORAD can scramble jet fighters within a matter of minutes to anywhere in the United States. Eberhard's statement was, to be sure, made after 9-11, so you might suspect that this reflected a post-9-11 speed-up of procedures. But an air traffic control document put out back in 1998 warned pilots that any airplanes persisting in unusual behavior will likely find two jet fighters on their tail within 10 or so minutes. On 9-11, however, that did not happen. Why not? Where was the military? The military's first answer, which was given immediately after 9-11 by General Richard Myers, the acting Head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and also by Mike Snyder who was a spokesman for NORAD they both said independently that the military did not send up any airplanes until after the Pentagon was struck that strike occurred at 938 and yet at 815 flight 11 had shown two of the signs of hijacking losing both the radio and the transponder signals. That means that procedures that usually result in an interception in 10 or so minutes had not been carried out in 80 or so minutes. That enormous delay suggested that a stand-down order canceling standard operating procedures had been issued. Some people started raising this possibility. Very quickly, a news story appeared. On Friday, September 14th, CBS News said, contrary to early reports, U.S. Air Force jets did get up in the air on Tuesday while the attacks were underway, although they arrived too late to prevent the attacks. This second story was then made official on September 18th when NORAD produced a timeline in which they indicated the times at which they were notified about each flight by the FAA, and then the times at which they had planes scrambled. The implicit message of the timeline was that the failure was due entirely to the FAA, because in each case it notified the military so late that interceptions were impossible. But not everyone accepted that conclusion. Some early members of the 9-11 Truth Movement, Doing the math showed that NORAD's new timeline did not get it off the hook. With regard to the first flight, even if we accept NORAD's claim that NEEDS was not notified about Flight 11 until 8.40, NORAD's implicit claim that it could not have prevented the attack on the North Tower of the World Trade Center is problematic. If fighters had immediately been scrambled from McGuire Air Force Base in New Jersey, they could have intercepted Flight 11 before 847, which is when the North Tower was struck. NORAD, to be sure, had a built-in answer. They claimed that there were no fighter jets on alert at McGuire. Critics have said this claim is very implausible, since that's the closest Air Force base to New York City, and everybody knows New York City would be one of the chief targets of a terrorist attack. I'll come back to that issue later. Even less plausible, the critics have said, was NORAD's claim that needs did not have time to prevent the second attack needs had been notified about flight 175 at 8.43, 20 minutes before the South Tower was struck. The F-15s, which were originally ordered to go after flight 11, were now told, according to this second story, to go after 175. The scramble order, NORAD said, was given at 8.46, given the military's own statement that F-15s can go from scramble order to 29,000 feet in two and a half minutes. The F-15s, even if they had to come from Otis Air Force Base in Cape Cod, which NORAD claimed, would have been streaking towards Manhattan by 8.49, so they could have easily gotten there before 9.03 when the South Tower was struck. NORAD said, however, that it took the F-15s six minutes simply to take off. Critics said that it looked like a stand down order or at least a slow down order had been issued. Critics also pointed out that even if the F-15s did not take off until 8:52 as they said, they could still have gotten to Manhattan in time to prevent the second attack, assuming that they were going full speed. And according to one of the pilots, they were. Lieutenant Colonel Timothy Duffy said they went full-blower all the way. And yet, according to NORAD's timeline, when the South Tower was struck at 903, the F-15s were still 71 miles away. Doing the math showed that the fighters could not have been going even half-blower. It still looked like a stand-down order, or at least a slow-down order, had been issued. The same problem Existed with respect to NORAD's explanation Of its failure to protect the Pentagon NORAD again blamed the FAA Saying that although the FAA knew about the hijacking of Flight 77 Before 9 o'clock that morning It did not notify NORAD until 9.24 Too late for NORAD to respond Again, doing the math Showed that this explanation did not work NORAD claimed that it issued the scramble order immediately at 9.24. The attack on the Pentagon did not occur until 14 minutes later at 9.38. That would have been more than enough time for jet fighters to get there from Andrews Air Force Base, which is only a few miles away. Why then did NORAD not prevent the attack on the Pentagon? Part of NORAD's answer was that no fighters were on alert at Andrews, so that needs had to give the scramble order to Langley Air Force base which is about 130 miles away also it again took the pilots 6 minutes simply to take off so they did not get away until 9:30 however even if those explanations are accepted the scrambled F16s critics pointed out could go 1500 miles per hour so they could have reached washington a couple of minutes before the Pentagon was struck. But according to NORAD, they were still 105 miles away. That would mean that the F-16s were going less than 200 miles an hour, which would not even be one quarter blower. In all three cases, therefore, NORAD's attempt to put all the blame on the FAA failed. Critics were able to show, especially with regard to the second and third flights, that NORAD's new story still implied that a stand down order must have been issued. It is not surprising, therefore, that the 9 11 Commission came up with a third story, which is not subject to the same objections. But the main question is still the same is it true? One reason to suspect that it is not true is the very fact that it is the third story. When we have a criminal, say, in a robbery case, a criminal suspect, and he gives you three different stories, you start to get a little suspicious. You know, he says, they say, where were you the night that was robbed? He said, oh, I went to the movie. No, the movie theater was closed that night. Oh, that's right, I was with my girlfriend. And no, we checked with her, and she was home with her husband. (laughs) So he says oh that's right that's the night I stayed home and read the bible you're probably you're probably not going to believe that now that's very funny isn't it but that's exactly the situation we have here we've been given three different stories why military did you not intercept those fighters I will show that this new story is just as problematic as the previous ones As we saw, I'll start with uh, Flight 11, the Commission's treatment of Flight 11. As we saw, flight controllers are supposed to react quickly if they see any of the three standard signs of a hijacking. But Flight 11 hit the trifecta, showing all three standard signs. And yet no one at the Boston FAA Center, we are told, took any action. Eventually, Boston having heard hijackers giving orders, called the FAA Command Center in Herndon. Herndon then called FAA headquarters in Washington, but no one there, we are told, called the military. Finally, the FAA Center in Boston called Needs directly at 8.38. To accept this story, we would have to believe that although the FAA should have notified the military about Flight 11 within a minute of seeing the danger signals at 8.15, the FAA personnel at Boston, Herndon, and Washington were all so incompetent that 23 minutes passed before the military was notified. We would then need to reconcile this picture of top-to-bottom dereliction of duty with the fact that no F.A. personnel have ever been fired or even publicly reprimanded for the behavior that day. The next implausible element in this new story involves Colonel Robert Marr, the commander at Needs. As we saw earlier, if he had planes scrambled immediately, even from Otis, they might have prevented the first attack on the World Trade Center. And yet we are told He called down to Florida to General Larry Arnold, the head of NORAD's U.S. Continental Region, to get authorization to have planes scrambled, and the phone call took eight minutes. Besides the fact that this would be an extraordinarily long time for an emergency phone call, the call was not even necessary according to the military's own regulations. The commission would have us believe that it was, And yet the very Defense Department document that it cites says that anyone in the military chain of command after receiving verbal requests from civil authorities for support in an emergency may immediately respond. Anyone in the chain of command. So definitely Colonel Marr, the head of needs. But this tale of an eight minute phone call is probably not the biggest lie in the commission's story about Flight 11. That award seems to belong to the claim that although the FAA saw signs of hijacking at 8.15, the military was not notified until 8.38. Blogger Tom Flacco says that he was told by two people independently, a source in the Transportation Department and Laura Brown, the FAA's Deputy in Public Affairs, that the National Military Command Center in the Pentagon had set up an air threat teleconference that morning at about 8.20. If these two sources are right, therefore, it would seem that the military knew about Flight 11's erratic behavior shortly after 8.15, which would mean that the FAA had followed standard operating procedures.
0: You're listening to author and theologian, Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's program is 9/11 Flights of Fancy. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
1: I turn now to the Commission's treatment of flight 77 and the attack on the Pentagon. As we saw earlier, if the FAA told NORAD about flight 77 at 9:24, as NORAD's timeline had said, NORAD should have had fighter jets in Washington before 938, when the Pentagon was struck. The 9-11 Commission's solution to this problem was to tell yet another new tale, according to which the FAA never told NORAD about Flight 77. One inconvenient fact was that General Larry Arnold, the head of NORAD's U.S. Continental Region, had, in open testimony to the Commission in 2003, repeated NORAD's statement that it had been notified about the hijacking at 9.24. Other NORAD officials, moreover, had testified that the fighters at Langley that scrambled at 9.30 were scrambled in response to the word about Flight 77. The Commission handled this problem by simply saying that these statements by Arnold and the other NORAD officials were incorrect. The Commission again did not explain how they could have been incorrect, but it said that those statements were unfortunate because they made it appear that the military had been notified in time to respond. The Commission's task then was to convince us that that was not true. Basic to the Commission's new story about Flight 11 is another tale of incredible incompetence by FAA officials. This tale goes like this. At 8.54, the FAA controller in Indianapolis, after seeing Flight 77 go off course, lost its transponder signal and even its radar track. Rather than reporting the flight as possibly hijacked, however he assumed that it had crashed. Evidently, it didn't occur to him that a possibly crashed airliner should be reported. But later, after hearing about the other hijackings, he came to suspect that Flight 77 just may have been hijacked too. So he shared this suspicion with Herndon, and Herndon in turn shared this suspicion with FAA headquarters. But no one, we are told, at FAA headquarters, shared this suspicion with the military. The result, the commission says, is that needs never received notice that American 77 was hijacked. But even if we could believe this ridiculous tale, there is still the problem of why the F-16s at Langley Air Force were scrambled at 930 FAA incompetence again to the rescue. At 9.21, 35 minutes after Flight 11 had crashed into the World Trade Center, some technician at NEEDS, we are told, heard from some FAA controller at Boston that Flight 11 was still in the air and was headed towards Washington. The NEEDS technician then notified the NEEDS mission crew commander, who issued a scramble order to Langley, so, the commission claims, the Langley jets were scrambled in response to a Phantom aircraft, not to an actual hijacked aircraft. This new story, however, is riddled with problems. One problem is simply the fact that this story had never before been told. As the commission itself says, It was not recounted in a single public timeline or statement issued by the FAA or Department of Defense. It was, for example, not in NORAD's official report, Air War Over America, the foreword for which was written by General Larry Arnold. General Arnold's ignorance of Flight 77 was, in fact, an occasion for public humiliation. The 9-11 Commission at a hearing in June of 2004 berated him for not remembering that the Langley jets had really been scrambled in response to phantom flight 11 not in response to a warning about flight 77 Richard Benvenista began a lengthy grilling by asking General Arnold why did no one mention the false report received from the FAA the Flight 11 was headed south during your initial appearance before the 9-11 Commission back in May of last year? After an embarrassing exchange, Benvenista struck the knife in even further, asking, General, is it not a fact that the failure to call our attention to the notion of a phantom Flight 11 continuing from New York City south skewed the official Air Force report, which does not contain any information about the fact ...that you had not received notification that Flight 77 had been hijacked. Surely by May of last year, when you testified before the Commission, you knew those facts. In Alice in Wonderland, the White Queen says, "...it is a poor memory that remembers only backwards." (laughs) One must wonder if General Arnold felt that he was being criticized for not remembering the future that is, for not remembering a story that had been invented only after he had given his testimony. Arnold, in any case, simply replied that he didn't recall those facts in May of last year. But if those alleged facts were actual facts, that reply would be beyond belief. According to the news story, NORAD, under Arnold's command, failed to scramble jet fighters in response to flight 11, 175, 77, and 93. The one time it did scramble fighters, it did so in response to a false report. Surely that would have been the biggest embarrassment of Arnold's professional life, and yet he supposedly didn't recall those facts. A second problem is that there's no way for this story to be verified. The commission says that the truth of this story is clear, From taped conversations at FAA centers, contemporaneous logs compiled at NEEDS, Continental Region Headquarters, and NORADS, and other records. But when we look in the notes at the back of the 9 11 Commission report, we find no references to any of those documents. The sole reference we find is to a NEEDS audio file on which someone at the FAA's Boston Center allegedly tells someone at needs, I just had a report that American 11 is still in the air and it's headed towards Washington. The commission claims to have discovered this audio file. Again, however, we simply have to take the commission's word for it. We cannot obtain this audio file, and there is no mention of any test by any independent agency that has verified that this audio file was in fact made on 9-11 Rather than created at a later date. But could not reporters interview the people who were involved in this conversation? No, because the Commission says nonchalantly, we have been unable to identify the source of this mistaken FAA information. This disclaimer is hard to believe. It is now very easy to identify people from their voices, recordings of their voices. And yet we are supposed to believe that of the finite number of people working at the Boston Center and among the needs technician, they could not figure out who the people were who had that conversation. Another implausible element is the very idea that someone at Boston would have concluded that Flight 11 was still airborne. According to stories immediately after 9-11, flight controllers at Boston said they never lost sight of Flight 11. Flight controller Mark Hodgkins later said, I watched the target of American 11 the whole way down. If so, everyone at the Boston Center would have known this. How could anything on a radar screen have convinced anyone at the Boston Center 35 minutes later that Flight 11 was still aloft? Still another implausible element is the idea that the mission commander it needs, having received this implausible report from a technician, would have been so confident of its truth that he would have immediately ordered Langley to scramble F-16s. This entire story about Phantom Flight 11 is the Commission's attempt to explain why, if the military had not been notified about Flight 11, A scramble order was issued to Langley at 9.24, which resulted in F-16s taking off at 9.30. As we have seen, every element in the story is implausible. Equally implausible is the Commission's explanation as to why, if the F-16s were airborne at 9.30, they were not close enough to Washington to protect the Pentagon at 9.38. To answer this question... The commission again calls on FAA incompetence. The F-16s we are told were supposed to go to Baltimore to intercept Phantom Flight 11 before it reached Washington, but the FAA controller, along with the lead pilot, thought that the orders were for the F-16s to go east over the ocean. So at 9:38, when the Pentagon was struck. The Langley fighters were about 150 miles away. Has there ever been, since the days of the Marx Brothers and the Three Stooges, such a comedy of errors? The explanation is simply not believable. By the time of the scramble order, it was clear that the threat was from hijacked airliners in this country, not from abroad my six-year-old grandson would have known to double-check the order before sending the fighters out to sea. Even more problematic is the Commission's claim that the Pentagon officials were in the dark about the hijacking of Flight 77. That claim is flatly contradicted by Laura Brown's memo. Having said that the FAA had established its teleconference with the military officials within minutes of the first strike, she said that the FAA shared real-time information about all flights of interest including flight 77. Moreover, explicitly taking issue with NORAD's claim that it knew nothing about flight 77 until 9:24, she said, NORAD logs indicate that the FAA made formal notification about American flight 77 at 9:24. But information about the flight was conveyed continuously during the phone bridges before the formal notification. This statement about informal notification was known by the commission. Richard Benvenista, after reading Laura Brown's memo into the commission's record, said, So now we have in question whether there was an informal Real-time communication of the situation, including Flight 77's situation, to personnel at NORAD. But when the Commission wrote up its report a year later with its claim that the FAA had never notified NORAD about Flight 77, it simply pretended that this memo did not exist. The Commission also claims that people in the Pentagon had no idea that an aircraft was headed in their direction until two minutes before the Pentagon was struck. But this claim was contradicted by Secretary of Transportation Norman Mineta in open testimony given to the Commission itself. Mineta testified that at 9.20 he went down to the shelter conference room under the White House And Vice President Cheney was already in charge. Minetta says During the time that the airplane was coming into the Pentagon, there was a young man who would come in and say to the Vice President, The plane is 50 miles out. The plane is 30 miles out. And when it got down to, The plane is 10 miles out, the young man also said to the Vice President, Do the orders still stand? And the Vice President turned and whipped his neck around and said, of course the orders still stand. Have you heard anything to the contrary? When Minetta was asked by Commissioner Timothy Romer how long this conversation occurred before after he arrived, Minetta said probably 5 or 6 minutes, which as Romer pointed out would mean about 9:25 or 9:26. According to the 9/11 Commission, no one in our government knew that an aircraft was approaching the Pentagon until about 9:36. So there was no time to shoot it down. But according to Minetta, the vice president knew at least 10 minutes earlier at 9:26. The 9/11 Commission dealt with Minetta's testimony in the same way it dealt with almost everything else that threatened its story. It simply ignored it in its final report. This testimony by Minetta was a big threat not only because it indicated that there was knowledge of the approaching aircraft at least 12 minutes before the Pentagon was struck, but also because it implied that Cheney had issued a stand-down order. Mineta himself did not suggest this. He assumed that the orders mentioned by the young man were orders to have the plane shot down. But that interpretation does not fit what actually happened. The aircraft was not shot down. Minetta's interpretation also would make the story unintelligible. If the orders had been to shoot down the aircraft, if it got close to the Pentagon, the young man would have had no reason to ask, do the orders still stand? The question makes sense only if the orders were to do something unusual, not to shoot down the aircraft. This strongly suggests that the attack on the Pentagon was desired. The same implication follows from another problem. Every part of the story about the fighters from Langley we saw is implausible. But an even more basic implausibility is the very claim that the order had to go to Langley because Andrews had no fighters on alert. One reason to doubt that claim is simply that it is, in a word, preposterous. Andrews has the responsibility for protecting Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, And Air Force One, the Supreme Court, the Houses of Congress, the White House, the Treasury Department, is it really credible to believe that Andrews would never have fighters on alert? In addition to this a priori consideration, there is the empirical fact that the U.S. military's own website said at the time, although it was modified shortly after 9 11, said at the time that there were at least three squadrons that kept fighters on alert. The 121st Fighter Squadron of the 113th Fighter Wing was said to provide capable and ready response forces for the District of Columbia in the event of natural disaster or civil emergency. The Marine Fighter Attack Squadron 321 was said to be supported by a reserve squadron providing Maintenance and supply functions necessary to maintain a force in readiness. And the District of Columbia Air National Guard was said to provide combat units in the highest possible state of readiness. The assumption that Andrews did have fighters on alert on which NORAD could have called is further supported by a report given by Kyle Hintz, one of the co-founders of 9-11 Citizens Watch he tells about the conversation he had with Donald Arias, the chief of public affairs for NORAD's continental region. After Arius had told Hintz that Andrews was not part of NORAD, Hintz asked him whether or not there were assets at Andrews that, although not technically part of NORAD, could have been tasked by NORAD. Rather than answer, Arius hung up. If we, on the basis of these considerations, conclude that there must have been fighters on alert at Andrews, then we must conclude that if NORAD had been serious about stopping the attack on the Pentagon, it would have called on these fighters, not the ones at distant Langley. The realization that Andrews must have had fighters on alert has many implications. For one thing... If the story that there were only two Air Force bases in the whole needs area with fighters on alert uh, is false, because Andrews also had them on alert, it's probably the case then that McGuire also had fighters on alert. So that means that the whole story about that NORAD told in uh, the second version of the official story of calling on uh, fighters from Langley, was also a lie.
0: You're listening to author and theologian Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's program is 9-11 Flights of Fancy. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
1: The conclusion that the whole story is a lie will be reinforced by our examination of the Commission's treatment of Flight 93. Flight 93 presented the commission with a different task. In relation to the previous flights, its task was to explain why the U.S. military did not intercept and shoot down the hijacked airliners. With regard to Flight 93, it had to convince us that the military did not shoot it down. It sought to do this not by refuting the evidence, which is considerable, that Flight 93 was shot down by our own military, but by simply constructing a new tale, intended to show that the U.S. military could not have shot down Flight 93. The Commission makes two major claims about Flight 93. The first one is that by the time the military learned about the flight, it had crashed. The centrality of this claim is shown by the fact that it is repeated, almost mantra-like, throughout the chapter. The main support for this claim is provided by yet another tale of amazing incompetence by FAA officials. At 9.28, we are told, the traffic controller in Cleveland heard sounds of possible screaming and noticed that the flight had descended 700 feet, but he did nothing. Four minutes later, the controller heard a voice saying, we have a bomb on board. Well, the controller not being completely brain dead, finally notified his superior, who in turn notified FAA headquarters. Later, however, when Cleveland asked Herndon whether the military had been called, the commission claims, Herndon told Cleveland that FAA personnel well above them in the chain of command had to make the decision to seek military assistance and were working on the issue. To accept this account, We must believe that on a day on which there had already been three hijackings, officials at FAA headquarters had to debate whether an airliner with a bomb on board was worth bothering the military about. And we must believe that they were still debating this question 13 minutes later when we are told the following conversation between Herndon and FAA headquarters occurred. Herndon. Uh, Do we want to think uh, about scrambling aircraft? Headquarters. Oh, God, I don't know. Herndon. Uh, That's a decision somebody's going to have to probably make in the next 10 minutes. But obviously the decision was that the military should not be disturbed, because 14 minutes later, at 10.03... When Flight 93 crashed in Pennsylvania, we are told, no one from FAA headquarters had yet requested military assistance regarding United 93. We are expected to believe, in other words, that FAA officials are complete idiots. In any case, besides arguing by means of this tale of incredible incompetence that the FAA never formally notified the military about Flight 93, the Commission argued that there was also no informal notification during any teleconference. In this case, not being able to argue that the teleconference has started too late, the Commission argued that they were worthless. Its summary statement said the FAA, the White House, and the Defense Department each initiated a multi-agency teleconference before 930. None of them included the right officials from both the FAA and the Defense Department. Let's begin with the teleconference initiated by the Department of Defense. Why was it worthless for transmitting information from the FAA to the military? Because, we are told, Pentagon operators were unable to get the FAA on the telephone, even though they got everybody else on the line. As we saw earlier, however, Laura Brown of the FAA seemed to have independent knowledge about this teleconference when it started, which suggests that the FAA was reached. Why was the FAA-initiated teleconference equally worthless? The problem here, the Commission claimed, was that the officer at the National Military Command Center said that the information was of little value, so he didn't pay attention. However, even if we could believe that no one at the Pentagon was monitoring the call, Laura Brown's memo had said that the Air Force liaison to the FAA established contact directly with NORAD on a separate line. Her memo said, moreover, that the FAA shared real-time information about all the flights of interest, and the Commission itself agrees that by 934, FAA headquarters knew about the hijacking of Flight 93, so it was a flight of interest. The Commission's claim is therefore flatly contradicted by the memo, which was read into the Commission's own record. What about the White House teleconference, which was run by Richard Clark? The Commission says, we do not know who from the Defense Department participated. Well, one problem with this is that they didn't know. How could they know that the right officials were not involved? But another problem is that they could have easily found out. Everybody in the Pentagon would have known who was involved in the White House video conference. Furthermore, all they had to do was look in Richard Clark's book, Against All Enemies, which had become a national bestseller while the hearings were going on. It clearly states that the participants from the Pentagon were Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, General Richard Myers, who had become acting chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And from the FAA, Jane Garvey, the head of the FAA. So if these were not the right officials, who would have been? The Commission's attempt to prove that the military could not have learned about Flight 93 from this video conference is even more explicitly contradicted by Clark, who reports that at about 9.35, Jane Garvey reported on a number of potential hijacks, which included United 93 over Pennsylvania. Therefore, more than 25 minutes before 93 crashed, both Myers and Rumsfeld heard, according to Clark, from the head of the FAA that Flight 93 was considered a potential hijack. The Commission's tales about FAA incompetence and worthless teleconferences are, therefore, directly contradicted by Richard Clark's book and Laura Brown's memo. Their combined testimony implies that the Commission's main claim that by the time the military learned about the flight, it had crashed, is a bald-faced lie. To recall where we are, the Commission's first major claim is that the U.S. military could not have shot down Flight 93 because it did not know about the hijacking of this flight until after it crashed at 10.03. The Commission's second main point, to which we now turn, is that the authorization to shoot planes down was not issued until several minutes after 10.03. In support of this point, the Commission claims that Vice President Cheney, who was known to have issued the shoot-down authorization from the shelter conference room beneath the White House, did not get down there until almost 10 o'clock. But this claim is doubly problematic. One problem is that the claim is not supported by any documented evidence. The Commission claims it is supported by Secret Service data, but then it admits that the data is no longer available. So we simply have to take the Commission's word for it, and this is very difficult because the Commission's claim is contradicted by every prior report. A White House photographer who was an eyewitness and various newspapers, including the New York Times, said that Cheney went down shortly after 9 o'clock. Richard Clark says that Cheney went down about 9.12. Even Cheney himself on Meet the Press suggested that he went down at about that time. But the commission, showing its usual disdain for evidence that contradicts its story, makes no mention of any of these reports, including Cheney's own statement. The most dramatic contradiction of the Commission's timeline was provided by the statement by Norman Minetta, which I read earlier. Minetta indicated that when he got to the underground shelter at 9.20, Cheney was already in charge. The Commission, insisting that Cheney did not get there until almost 10 o'clock, simply omitted any mention of Minetta's statement. But Minetta's statement is still available for any of you to read. So we can say with a very high level of confidence that the Commission's account is a lie. The same is true of the Commission's account that the shoot-down order was not issued until after 10.10. In making this claim, the Commission tells a tale of yet another incredible error made by the FAA. Flight 93 reportedly crashed at 10.03. And yet sometime between 10.10 and 10.15, the commission claims, someone at the FAA told the military that Flight 93 was still aloft and headed towards Washington. Once again, FAA headquarters managed to call the military only when it had a false report. In any case, we are told, the military requested permission to engage, and Cheney gave the authorization sometime between 10.10 and 10.15. The implication is that the military could not possibly have shot down Flight 93 because it had already crashed. However, the Commission's new timeline is again contradicted by several previous reports. First, although the Commission says that Richard Clark did not receive the shoot-down authorization until 10.25, Clark himself says he received it 35 minutes earlier, at 9:50. Second, the story of Cheney's giving permission to engage an aircraft that was 80 miles out, originally appeared in stories published shortly after 9/11. And in these stories, Flight 93 was still up and the military fighters were sent to shoot it down. That original account is supported moreover by several reports stating that prior to crashing Flight 93 was being tailed by U.S. military fighters. One such report came from CBS. Another came from a flight controller who had ignored an order not to talk to the media. And one report even came from Assistant Secretary of State Paul Wolfowitz. And yet all these reports were ignored. In any case, the Commission's timeline, besides being contradicted by all those stories, is also contradicted by James Bamford's account based on a script from ABC. According to this account, Cheney's authorization was transmitted to Colonel Marr at Needs, who then sent out word to air traffic controllers to instruct fighter pilots to destroy the United jetliner. Marr reportedly said, United Flight 93 will not be allowed to reach Washington, D.C., The Commission simply tells its tale as if that report was never broadcast. The Commission's account is contradicted, finally, by reports that the shoot-down actually occurred. Major Daniel Nash, one of the two F-15 pilots who was said to have been sent to New York City from Otis, later reported that when he returned to base, he was told that a military F-16 had shot down an airliner in Pennsylvania. Besides ignoring all these reports, the Commission also ignored reports from people who lived near the spot where the airliner came down. These reports spoke of missile-like noises, sightings of a small military airplane, debris falling from the airliner miles from the crash site, and the discovery of one part of an engine about a mile away. There is, in sum, an enormous amount of evidence suggesting that the FAA did notify the military about Flight 93, that Cheney went down to the underground shelter about 45 minutes earlier than the Commission claims, that he gave the shoot-down authorization about 25 minutes earlier than the Commission claims, and that military jets were sent to shoot down Flight 93. It would appear that if some committee had set out to construct a fable about 93, every part of which could be easily falsified, it could not have improved on the Commission's tail. And yet, not one mainstream newspaper or television station has reported on any of these obvious falsehoods. My conclusion. The Commission, as we have seen, has attempted to exonerate the military for its failure to prevent the attacks of 9-11. According to the Commission... Accounts suggesting that the military was notified in time to respond overstated the FAA's ability to provide the military with timely and useful information that morning. In its effort to correct that overstatement, the Commission gave us a picture of incredible incompetence at every level of the FAA. This portrait of rampant incompetence is contradicted by several facts. One such fact is NORAD's timeline of September 18, 2001, which indicates that the FAA responded slowly, but not nearly as slowly as the 9-11 Commission now claims. A second fact is Laura Brown's memo, which says that the FAA was on the telephone with the military from about 8.50 on that morning, talking about all flights of interest. A third fact is that the FAA was called on to carry out an unprecedented task that morning, grounding all the aircraft in the country. This had never been done before. And yet the Commission itself says the FAA executed that unprecedented order flawlessly. Can we really believe that they would do something they had never done before flawlessly and do something that they do a hundred times a year ask the military to scramble airplanes so incompetently. It would seem, therefore, that the first chapter of the 9-11 Commission report is one long lie. As I have shown elsewhere, that is true of the report as a whole. This conclusion, of course, has frightening implications, because it is hard to imagine why the Commission would have engaged in such deceit except to cover up the fact that the attacks of 9-11 were orchestrated by forces within our own government, including our armed forces. And if that is the case, then our country is even in worse shape than already evident through the Downing Street memos, which revealed that the administration fixed the intelligence in order to go to war in Iraq. As Burns Weston, a professor of law, has said, We now have a disparity between official 9-11 spin and independently researched 9-11 fact so glaring as to suggest the possibility of a constitutional crisis unlike anything our country has ever known. Overcoming this crisis must surely be the main task before us as American citizens because it is likely that unless we can overcome this crisis, all the related crises— Growing militarism and imperialism, growing plutocracy, increasing poverty in our country and around the world, increasing destruction of our planet's ecosystem, and so on, will simply continue to get worse. The first step in overcoming our constitutional crisis is to have this crisis acknowledged. This is why the 9-11 Truth Movement is in one respect the most important movement in our country today. This movement has accomplished its first task, providing evidence strong enough to convince anyone with even a slightly open mind that the official story is a lie. What is now needed is for this fact to be publicly recognized. This will probably require a mass movement to force the truth out into the open. So the 9-11 truth movement needs a new phase in which this is the primary emphasis. For this, the movement will need leaders of a different kind, ones who can inspire and mobilize a mass movement. I hope some of you hearing these words will take up this challenge. I also hope that the mainstream media, recognizing that 9-11 has been used to justify policies that have greatly weakened our country and undermined its reputation and credibility in most of the world, will put the welfare of our country and our planet ahead of any considerations, corporate or otherwise, that would prevent it from carrying out its most important task as the fourth estate, exposing high crimes in high places.
0: You've been listening to author and theologian Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's program has been 9-11, Flights of Fancy, from a speech delivered on October 12, 2005, in Montpellier, Vermont. This speech is a detailed explication of the second half of Dr. Griffin's acclaimed book, The 9-11 Commission Report, Omissions and Distortions, a critique of the kane zelikow Report, in which he examines in detail flights 11, 175, 77, and 93. Dr. Griffin is author of The New Pearl Harbor, Disturbing Questions About the Bush Administration and 9-11. His new book is Christian Faith and the Truth Behind 9-11, A Call for Reflection and Action. The video of Flights of Fancy was shot by John Gannon and edited by Ken Jenkins. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution? evolution of the mind if you seek then you shall find that we all come from the divine you dig what i'm saying now if you
1: take heed to the words of